Welcome to Perplexagogy, the podcast for those perplexed, puzzled and perturbed by pedagogy. In this second episode of the podcast from the Durham Centre for Academic Development, DCAD will capture and explore key concepts in learning and teaching and unpick what's good with them, things that may be challenging and provide some tips to take away and use in your own learning and teaching. Before we begin, let me introduce myself. I'm Rochelle O'Brien and I'm a Senior Learning Designer at Durham and today I'm joined by... I'm Nicola Fenn and I'm a Digital Learning Developer at Durham. I'm Sam Nilton, I'm an Education Developer at Durham. And I'm Mark and I'm another Senior Learning Designer. Just Mark. Oh, and you want to know what my surname is? Okay, I'm Mark Childs. <laughs> the Mark Childs, no. <laughs> Just a Mark Childs, I come in six packs. <laughs> A little later in this episode, we have an interview with Justine Wolfenden, who's an assistant professor teaching in the classics department at Durham, who's going to talk to us about how their teaching is adapting and evolving, sharing what's working and what isn't. But before that, let's make a start. Today, we're going to be exploring universal design for learning. Universal Design for Learning provides a framework to help us adopt inclusive approaches to learning and teaching broadening access to all students. So, what is universal design for learning? So the so universal design for learning actually comes out of universal design in, in architecture and among other things. And let me give you an analogy. So if you if you think about um, pavements that we all walk on, you'll notice every so often that there's a dip originally was put in, in America to allow wheelchairs to cross roads. But actually, of course, it allows now it's used for all kinds of other things like people with trolleys, cars moving in and out and so on. The idea being a need that comes from one particular group, if it's if it's recognized and and adapted for, um, creates something better for everybody. And that's really the kind of core idea between universal uh, design for learning, which came out of some work that was done in the early 2000s in, in North Carolina State University originally, but it's been adopted by lots of people at all levels of education. I mean, it builds on all kinds of other pedagogical ideas. Um, most people are aware of the uh, Bloom's taxonomy, this idea that there are levels to learning or, or, or kind of a hierarchy, if you like, of, of understanding from, from basic kind of uh, recall up to kind of um, formulating and comparing concepts and ideas. And that's one of the underlying principles of it. Thanks, Sam. That's a great introduction and a really helpful analogy. To get us started with UDL, can you tell us about the three pillars on which UDL are built? Let's start with engagement, the first pillar. Engagement is the kind of the why of learning. So it's trying to generate interest among your students, but recognising that students are different and might have different reasons for wanting to learn. And that's really in presenting different ways for learners to engage with a lesson. So, you know, can students in a class that you're teaching kind of regulate their own learning? Are they able to dip in and dip out as and when? Um, are they able to kind of sustain effort and, and be motivated? You know, a lot of us have seen over the last year, um, people engage with online learning that's been done in a pandemic situation and trying to maintain that motivation among students. So can you design your learning in such a way that it helps students engage with their effort and motivation? Um, and does it keep everybody interested? You know, if you're if you're exclusively providing, let's say, long t long video lectures to your students, is that the best way to engage those students? And if your students can't see themselves represented in the material that you're teaching, is that something that you should be doing? These are these are quite deep and complex questions, actually, and lead to all kinds of 
different areas that we can you know talk about and explore what about the second pillar can you tell us a little bit more about representation and representation um, is about how information is presented to learners so you know how how what ways do you kind of engage with students um, in terms of the stuff that you put out there um, are there ways to display information that you present in different ways so for example some some students might prefer to see data in a graph others might prefer to see data in tables from which they can generate their own representations um, do you provide kind of you know um, mostly visual information or do you provide mo mostly text information do you rely upon video or, or or audio or do you mix things up a lot of research shows that you know mixing things up allows you to engage a larger group of students the and then under representation as well we've got things like language and symbols you know i we often say that language is the kind of the the kind of ivory tower upon, upon which we build academia because every discipline has its own language and understanding the language helps you um, understand the community of practice in the discipline but if we if we're not cognizant of what students know and don't know we can certainly slip into our representation words that they they might not know already and and um and then can you you know decode the, the mathematical notation for example in mathematics the text the logic the symbols can do you identify and clearly label what they are and then finally comprehension in terms of representation so um, do you provide appropriate background knowledge to allow your students to engage with the material you're presenting them with do you provide links to other sources of information and do you give them a pathway through that that um, that content to allow them to kind of take on board what, what it's going and be able to generalise the ideas that you're presenting them with. That's a great explanation. Lots to think about. What about the final pillar, action and expression? And so this is really about engagement with the material. So you might ask yourself questions like, you know, does the activities that you're providing uh, give learners the opportunity to kind of act strategically and self-directed? Does it allow them to express themselves fluently? And does it allow them to kind of respond? You know, so you might think in that sense about using multiple media uh, multi multiple different kinds of media for communication you might build in fluency you might enhance the capacity for monitoring their own progress so they can become a bit more self-directed so you know if you're using a really simple example is giving them little self uh, diagnostic tests uh, multiple choice tests that help them understand where their areas that they might want to explore a bit more themselves and it's really trying to give learners the 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 ownership of their own learning that is one of those things that we try to do in higher education so yeah so it's it's a very complete um framework but it is quite practical so you know among the the notes for today will include links to particular um guides and elements and questions you can ask yourself if you want to use universal design for learning so udl is a really well established framework and it does lots of things well but sometimes it might be overreaching and we'll explore that a little bit later so one of the things that obviously universal design for learning is designing for all but one of the things that we we often do is think about particular groups of students with a particular need and and you know if we think about disabled students for instance there are there are models in ways in which we could think about disability and i know nikki you had some ideas on on this yeah so traditionally um the the disability has been very much seen through a kind of medical model lens which is about looking at the person and going oh what are the problems with them what can't they do what what is it that they are how are they disabled 
But actually, um, over the last sort of few decades, really, there's been a, a, a move towards the social model of disability, which is a model that looks at disability through the lens of disabled people themselves and says that actually they're generally disabled by problems and barriers in terms of the way society and institutions work and how they deal with people with a disability rather than necessarily being disabled by their impairment or difference. In other words, if the environment can be adapted, the barriers can be removed, people will then have more independence and control over how they interact with people and physical and virtual materials and institutions. There's a really good example of this. It's kind of the opposite of UDL. So um, near me, I live in Manchester, and there's a, uh, there's a, a shopping centre in the centre of Manchester uh, called the Arndale Centre. And it was about 18 months ago or so, they, they redeveloped part of their kind of um, a bit of a shopping centre and they took out... Uh, an escalator and they remodeled it redeveloped it and they when they reopened it I went in there and I was like what's going on here they they took out an escalator they put the escalator back in but they decided for aesthetic reasons that they wanted it to be look nicer so they thought what could we do with this escalator oh I know let's put like four steps at the bottom of it so that's what they did they put an escalator in with four steps at the bottom of it so now in order to use the escalator you need to be able to use steps as well. So it's just a, a, an indication of how sometimes universal design would, if they'd thought about this from a universal design perspective, they they wouldn't have done that. You know, they were just purely thinking from a design perspective. I read a GISC report uh, a couple of years back now, and it was looking at um, the use of... Um, Access of accessibility technology, a technology to improve accessibility, and it in this thing it observed that twice as many students without registered registered disabilities were using accessibility software than students with registered disabilities. So, I mean, obviously that's because there's way way more of them, um, but it does show that actually making these things available for students because they might have this deficit model, as Nick was talking about of what makes a disability a disability um, actually helps everybody because, you know, that thing with the steps, that's that's just annoying, even if you can use steps. Um, so designing them out actually makes things better for everybody. And I think we find that with a lot of things, like when we look at decolonizing the curriculum in a few episodes from now, um, that actually making things more comp- competent for more cultures actually helps everybody, not just the people you're aiming it at. So I think that's something where... You know, UDL could look as if it's just for accessibility for people with um, disabilities, but actually it helps everybody if you put it in, get it working properly. Yeah, I think, I mean, with the example of the, the, the escalator, I think if you if you went down that escalator, the down escalator, if you went down that escalator with a pushchair without realising there were stairs at the bottom, you'd be a little bit stuck. If you, you know, if you if you go down there with a walking stick and you're like, I can manage one step maybe, you know, then then everyone is inconvenienced it's not just not just the uh, the one group of people you know but also things like you talk about technology i use sometimes um like uh screen like a text to speech software to read back what i've written because when you listen to what you've written you can edit it and and, and do things with it better than if you just 
play it through in your head. Uh, I guess the flip side of, of thinking about that is I often use it the other way around. So I often find it easier to talk about something, dictate a huge chunk, and then edit that. Now, that used to be hor- horrendous technology could cope, but it's getting better and better now to the point that I, if I'm careful and I've learned how to talk the way that a, 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 I won't drop a brand name in, but a, you know, a mobile phone might understand that I can probably get away with you know th- 300 words of, of dictation to this thing and it, and it works quite well. And actually, I, I find that a much easier way to write kind of papers and texts and things because it, I can just spill off some ideas and then and then edit it down. And so it, it's in that sense, it was it was designed really for for one purpose. It was designed to, you know, call George, call, call Susan or whatever. But actually, you can use it to do, you know, a much bigger thing, if you like, you know, a more, a more sophisticated uh, task. Um, so it was both ways, you know, that kind of interaction with technology. Um, and it should be said that UDL was kind of built off the back of, of you know, di- the ideas of digital pedagogy. It came about because of online learning, although the, there were things before that that were that were kind of about, you know, it was really, I guess, that, that interaction with the, you know, the first generation of web-based learners, if you like. Um, so, yeah, it's got a, it's got a kind of, it's got an intimate kind of tie into to digital learning um, in a way that other things, you know, older ideas perhaps weren't, weren't created in the digital age. Which is interesting because I think we, we look at things like accessibility and think of it in terms of, oh, this is an issue because we've put everything online and not everybody's got a, a laptop or not everybody can use the Zoom or whatever. But the accessibility issues in an in-person classroom are, are immense as well, you know. I mean, uh, you know, writing clearly on the chalkboard or whatever or making sure that you don't cover your mouth when you're talking so that if uh, somebody's they've got a hearing impairment, they can still follow what you're saying. All those sorts of things are things that I think we covered on the PGCE, but it wasn't like when you're designing a um, a learning experience for your students when you're when you're teaching when you're doing classroom teaching, these are all the things you need to think about. Um, you know, what color chalk do you use? Don't use red chalk because if you've got if um, there's a kid in your class who's um, color blind, then um, then they won't be able to read that and all those sorts of things. So, you know, I think yeah, I, I, it's it's an interesting thing. It's an exact. I think it's another example of moving stuff online flags an issue that's already there and and that's a good thing because without the move online we might have just carried on being a bit oblivious to these sorts of issues. I think this is moving the conversation nicely towards what kind of barriers there might be in terms of implementation um, and what kind of misconceptions there might be out there so maybe this is something we could think about. The thing I, I draw on mainly is from um, materials that a group called CAST have produced um, which are located near Boston. So whether or not these were linked to the people that originally came up with all this sort of stuff, I, I don't know. Um, but um, but anyway, so and there's 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 twelve thousand words in this document um, that you have to dig around on the web page website to find a bit. So they're not exactly doing what they practicing what they preach there. And going through that, there are only a f- you know half a dozen things that I flagged. Um, so it's not like these are huge issues, but I think. It's a lot of stuff for anyone to take on board all at once. And I think they do say somewhere that it's not about, it's not a prescription. It's not like you have to do, follow all of these guidelines in all of these, in all of these three pillars all the way through. Otherwise, you know, you're not, you're, uh, 
you're not a good teacher. It's just saying that these are things to think about and pick on some of these and work through them bit by bit and and bear them in mind, really. Um, But one of the issues I think I have with the overall philosophy of it is that it's constantly saying, provide all these alternatives for all of your students all the time. So, like, have multiple pathways through the material or um, have uh, lots of examples each time you mention something. And yes, there's there's one issue, which is, of course, you've got to make sure everyone can access the materials, no matter, you know, well, there's a legal obligation to say that people with disabilities aren't substantially disadvantaged by the method that you're using to teach. So you've got to make sure that's covered. Otherwise, you know, you can get sued. So you need to make sure that basic is in there. But the whole idea of um, making it optimal for all students all the time isn't just not feasible because that's a massive amount of work i don't think it's necessarily there's a there's a strong um research basis that that's actually beneficial for students so for instance the thing that um sam was talking about earlier where some people might find graphs easier some people might find text easier some people might find an alternative ways of doing it easier making people work hard to, to to get the information as long as they're not we're having to work too hard but okay you might struggle reading a graph learn to read graphs you know you might struggle with the terminology learn the terminology i i, I mean i just randomly opened this document at one page and it's on the clarifying vocabulary stuff and yeah okay so you know i've i've been uh i i've been teaching i mean if the 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 students coming through now if they're like 12 they're they're like uh 18 20 that sort of age the traditional age for students they're um they're going to be 38 years younger than me (laughs) and in that time the language this is what i'm finding the language i use standard english has just morphed quite a lot so there's idioms i might use naturally that i grew up with that generation younger than me aren't necessarily going to know so going through your materials to remove that sort of stuff makes perfect sense you don't want to add in extra complications but some of the complications are an inevitable part of that of that discipline that they have to come to terms with then there's nothing wrong with it not with it being a bit of a problem for them bit a bit of a struggle for them so i think that's where i would diverge from from what the UDL stuff says, is it doesn't have to be optimal all the time. It just has to be accessible uh, at a baseline level. And then if there are other things that make it more difficult, then just work around it. I think think this is where it, it, yeah, it's just where it links in with things like ideas like cognitive load. So what you're talking about is reducing the extraneous cognitive load that might be associated with your slightly outdated terminology uh, or the terminology that's perhaps not culturally relevant to someone who's, say, a, a, an overseas student. Um, but you've got the intrinsic load of the subject matter in the material. So there it's about making sure that you're scaffolding things correctly so that um, they're not locked out of that information, so that it's explicit of what they need to know and where they need to know it from. Yeah, see? it's they're focusing on the stuff that they actually need, not trying to work out what does... I don't know what the phrase Coles to Newcastle means in this context, which is one that seems to have dropped out of <laughs> dropped out of usage in the last 30 years. Or, you know, all that butter's no par- fair words, butter, no parsnips. Well, you know, I mean, okay, I didn't even know what that meant when I heard it. But 
Okay, so those sort of things cut out. But if it's like, oh well, you can't use this because some people might not might not know what it means, and actually they need to know what it is. Or like you know the example of, and it's getting a bit learning learning stylesy as well in places, saying, oh you know some people prefer graphs, some people prefer text. Yeah, but it varies, and it all that you need to do isn't necessarily provide all the examples all the time, but move around using different ones at different points. The only thing I would say is that you can't you can't use a graph only because that would automatically lock out anyone who can't see it unless you provide a good alternative text description which is not the same as just saying this is a graph of xyz no and i think also it's it's going back to the learning outcomes it's not that every student has to have the exact same experience because some students aren't going to spend as much time doing it. Some people aren't going to be as able academically or not as interested. So, you know, there's still there's still going to be an inequitable thing because some people are better at it than others and some people are going to put more work in than others or some people are going to have the opportunity to do more work than others. So that it, what the, the better way of phrasing it is that... Uh, that everyone's chance of achieving the learning outcomes isn't disadvantaged by their um, you know their ability their um, whether they have a disability or not or um, whether or irrespective of their culture basically um, so basically that you're not that you're meeting that equal opportunities thing um, against the sort of the criteria of, of different um, different groups of people I think there's, a, there's an interesting point here. it re- reminded me of a conversation I had 20 years ago when we were designing uh, exams in physics and so we used to get contributed questions from members of staff and somebody had written a, p- a question that re- was around cricket and of course we were all yeah well, that's fine and of course you realize that cricket is is a big part of the culture in, in the UK in, in India Pakistan Australia but if you're a for if you're from Mexico probably maybe you do maybe you don't you know it's an interest it, it's tied to certain or cultures if you hate, if you hate cricket, cricket i was gonna say yeah. cricket, i mean it's not example. part of my culture it's part of my culture yeah so 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 it doesn't really matter where you're from but the point is um not to exclude people i guess is what i'm getting at it's, it's more you know we could have done the same question with throwing a ball against a wall which has probably far less cultural baggage than you know yeah so would it be fair to say then that universal design for learning is about creating more than one pathway so that students can find a way to access learning that suits them no oh yes sorry yes it is yes yeah no sorry no can i change that um Yes, and that's one of the. That's one of the. Yes, it is, and I think that's one of the issues I have with it because it doesn't. You don't have to do that. You have to give everybody a chance, but you don't have to give them multiple pathways through. Does, does it? Did you think it depends on the level of the education you're going for? In other words, so UDL was designed for all learning, so from like primary school, secondary school, and beyond. So, do you think that there are different obligations depending on which point you're at? And what level you're working at? Um, there's a bit where it says it has to be relevant and authentic to learners' individual goals, and I think uh, then that's an andragogy thing, which is that you know you need to, as an adult, you need to have everything. You need to see a point to what you're learning, and I think yes, you want some authenticity to it, and it has to it should be to go directed towards what the goals are. But that's way too a utilitarian vision of what education is all about, because. You know, yes, there are little byways that you might want to go off on. There are little sort of um, uh, 
things that you might want to learn just because they're interesting, not because it's going to be useful to you in, in, in your, you know, after the end of the degree or whatever. I think the important thing that UDL mentions is that it needs to be signposted what are the most important things and what aren't so that if you are struggling with workload, you know which bits to focus on. You know that you need to focus on, you know, this section because that's the bit that's going to be key for you to learn. But everything else is is interesting filler. But the interesting filler is still part of what education's all about. And I think that's that's where I would differ from it as well, really. It's it's um you know that and they're, they're focusing constantly on engagement and engagement's good because you need to be engaged because if the students aren't engaged they won't stay basically but engagement isn't the same thing as learning and you know we would there needs to be a balance there and i think it uh, obviously it's addressing an imbalance and so that's why it's focusing on that but i think if you were to take your guidance entirely from udl then you would be missing out part of what education is and also you'll be creating too much work for yourself along uh, around the same around, uh, around the wrong aspect not the wrong aspects um around aspects that aren't necessarily the priority which is why um you also need to think about ugl in terms of not just your content your material but the activities that you're actually implementing so so that people can have that chance for engagement on an equal footing so they can have those discussions that take them beyond the lecture beyond the provided content and into talking sharing working together yeah and i think a variety of activities i mean a variety of activities that um enable everybody to participate despite you know despite what their abilities are is a good thing but um but again it's not like oh you need to have a um you need to be able to have a um a an assessment whereby you both do a presentation, but if you don't like doing presentations, you can do a paper. But if you don't like doing papers, you can do a podcast. But if you don't like doing podcasts, you can do a video. That's not necessary. I think uh, if a student has a is a is enabled to do those, then fine, find an alternative way for them to 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 submit that assessment. But if it's just a matter about their preferences, then no test them on the different aspects test them on these different skills make sure that they you move them around so that everybody's has a, struggles at some point but don't remove the struggle entirely because that's part of what learning's about yeah i mean it's an interesting point is it because going back to to what we were talking about pathways and work i mean one of the big challenges that that we all face is workload and and if you were to use udl on its own as a as a lecturer you you'd you look at this stuff and you say, oh, I have to do five different things for that bit of content that I was going to kind of put out there. Well, am I going to have the time to do that? And there, there's certainly, there are legal minimums, as we've alluded to, about what you should do. But but there's also these other things. And, and you know, choice is great. I totally agree with you, Mark. Choice is great, but actually, is it helping the learning if you give them five different ways of engaging with something? Particularly if the if you've accounted for people's accessibility and and issues related to their disability provided a, a, a kind of a way in for everybody but then you're given other things just because you can uh, if you have the time does that actually help because ultimately you just you're just creating more work for yourself and i suppose that's the balance of this thing is it's like the tightrope you'd have to walk on you'd have to know what is enough 
and then and then what what do I really need to do and what what's the nice to have you know I can do if I want to. I think they 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 mentioned that at some point you know that prescription not a, a it's not a prescription you don't have to do everything, but I don't think what they've done effectively in the framework is flag which bits are essential and which bits are just making things better for everybody. It obviously is coming from a US based uh, place, um, whereas the legal parts will be. They're, they're they're depending on your kind of local uh, local laws and things like that. In particular, here we've we've got the public sector bodies accessibility regulations that came in. Um, although they're dated twenty eighteen, but they've actually come in um, over the last couple of years. The last the last tranche of regulations came into effect in September last year, um, and they cover all systems delivered via a web browser, basically that are that are um, put out by public sector organisations and uh, universities do count as that um jisk is a really good resource uh on this one they've actually got a really good overview of the implications of that those re- regulations for universities just give quite clear that the regulations apply to universities and that the, the main impact of them is that they have put the onus on institutions to actually comply with the accessibility requirements so and and, and failing to do so is in effect a failure to make reasonable adjustments under the law. So um, if we don't do these things, um, it will make certainly make it easier for students to make discrimination claims um, against universities. But also it's argue it's just not doing the right thing. You know, we can't it's not so we shouldn't see it as a hoop to jump through. We should see it as a way of better meeting our students' needs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, from my perspective, there was a huge focus, sort of rightly, on on um, captioning of videos because that was a big part of that. But um, we've actually put some resources out through DCAD that we can link to around the other elements of accessibility, you know, on, on PowerPoint slides, on written documentation and so on, because there are things to look out for there as well. Although captioning was the thing that got the spotlight because it was kind of new. Actually, the way you put a Word document together or so on also has a as there are ways you can do that and make that much more accessible so thank you very much that's really interesting so for now let's hand over to sam for the interview so sam are you there so today i'm delighted to be joined by justine wolfenden who's an assistant professor teaching on the teaching track in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham um, and I'm really thrilled to spend some time with Justine um, and I guess we're going through we've, we've, we're still going through the aftermath and the well the marking comes next I guess from this year like no other so I guess I wanted to maybe explore that with you for a minute Justine um, yeah, of so yeah so what's been the best thing about teaching online and then we'll do the worst thing so let's let's do the best <laughs> thing first I think if I were to try to narrow it down to one, well, I think I could probably say two things here and one a, a sort of effect of the other, really. I, I think that it makes a difference to have those recordings there. I know that when I was teaching before lockdown, we could record classes and we did, but there wasn't the same conscious focus on what needs to be recorded. It's actually been quite good for me in 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 helping me to centre my thoughts a little bit. So usually I can go in a classroom and if I'm teaching something I've taught before, there's a there's a sort of immediate 
set of memories. Um, you know, I've got a clear sense of how things will go. So it's been a really useful defamiliarization in a way to have to rethink things that are then going to be recorded, perhaps the class session, you know, and how we frame things in the class. Um, and then so people can access it afterwards if they can't be there. And I do like the accessibility angle. I think that that is really important, that often the environments that we're in are unintentionally ableist, but that we need to be conscious about access issues. Um, Durham, topographically, is quite a difficult place, I think, for people with certain types of um, additional needs to access. So I think that it's not great you know, because of the, the way things are set up, for example, um, for people who might need to use some some form of wheelchair or walking aid, it's not great with the cobbles and the hills and so on. But the idea that somebody could still join in and access that education through being online and recording, I think is actually a, a very positive step. And I hope that we could perhaps revisit a lot of this in a much more conscious way, in as we say, in the aftermath. And, and exactly from things like this, thinking about what do I want to keep, I, I don't think we can go back to what it was like before, and I don't think that we should. I think that this has provided everybody with, um, you could, the polite thing would be a catalyst and the ruder want to kick up the bum, and a chance to to reconsider who they are and what they do and and the nature of teaching. So, I mean, in, in, in that, when we talked about disability, there, I guess it's also flexibility. So, you know, if you're a student who's got a, part-time job and you're trying to balance all life and and I mean, that's one example that we can think of myriad of different examples exactly you know student carers or um people who've got children we do occasionally have students we we we're, we're very keen on widening access and participation in the department we're very keen on diversifying our student de demographic but it is if we look at the statistics there is a, a sort of a core component of many university classics departments nationally and, and to some extent internationally and we don't have as many mature students or um, students who aren't straight from school um, coming to us and I think that that's partly because people might struggle to think that they could fit in that kind of study um, and I, I think you're absolutely right that if you if you can offer that flexibility, then potentially you 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 enrich the subject because you diversify who has access to it, and then you're interacting with them, and you know I think we all win from that. Yeah. So you you mentioned the second positive out of the out of the online experience. What was that? Start of interest. Well, I think said that it was I was saying about the opportunity to rethink things that's one and then the access thing but yeah I mean I can add one other positive which is Durham sometimes has those days I say days I mean weeks where <clears throat> it's dark and rainy when you get up and go to work it's dark and rainy when you leave and it's dark and rainy in the middle now instead of being on the bailey and then having to peg it sort of in slush or snow or a little bit of ice or whatever over to um Elvet Riverside or beyond, I can just sit in my my house. So I mean, selfishly, there are days where it, it's a Durham day and you're just like, I don't really want to leave the house today and I don't have to. You know, I can just sit there and actually have a bit of time to collect my thoughts from session to session. So if you've got two or three classes in a row and you're just running and running and running, you're always feeling like you're playing catch up. So there's something about, okay, take two minutes, start again. So, you know, it actually, I think it, it helps you to feel more, um, I don't know, more in the moment rather than just like, I'm, I'm always like, I'm, all, I'm just 
if timetable is giving you three in a row, you're just like, you yeah, know, I'm just going backwards and forwards. So I think that, that allows you to collect yourself a bit more, which I don't know. Uh, I think when I was younger, I used to enjoy the excitement of the running to and fro, but now I'm getting a bit older. I'm just a bit like, I just want a minute. just want a minute to collect myself, maybe get a coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I... I um. I, I find it like I, I, let, I let things run just to just before in a way that I wouldn't do if I was in a room. Because if I was in a room, I'd turn up about 10 minutes earlier if I could. And I'd be like, Ugh. and because I know I've set it up all online, I can kind of right into the, I get a cup of tea, sit down, 30 seconds, bang, I'm on. And I, I, in the 30 seconds, I have to do all, I have to kind of compress all that, getting ready, kind of, yeah, it's a fascinating one. So in terms of um, uh, disadvantages then of the, of the kind of, I mean, Take, taking away the pandemic itself, which has been awful, but in terms of the online teaching piece, what what would you say are disadvantages for you from that this last year? Yeah, I think I think that probably the primary disadvantage is not being in the same room as your students because we pride ourselves in the department on developing community, and we're just that we know we're, we've expanded enough that you know that that sometimes our classes. <laughs> are quite large but they're not as big as say when medics are training and you're in a room with 400 people or you know certain other types of subject where you're taught together we might have some of our lecture classes you know 140 150 but a lot of the classes i teach the upper limit might be 50 to 60 um maybe a bit more for lecture ones but language ones no more than that sometimes we split them and they're lower so i might have say 35 students in a room and that means that i can get to know them i can find out who they are what their names are get a sense of you know how they're coping and i find that i hadn't realized how much i take well actually no tell this is not true i should have known exactly how much i rely on reading a room and picking up a sort of sense of how people are i know we can test this also in um in quantitative ways but how much i I pick up from just being able to have those interactions. And I've always been very, you know, observant as a, as a teenager, I was the kind of person who could pootle about and look at buildings on my own and, and then come back full of like information and try and tell people who'd just be looking at me like, why are you telling me about these like buildings? Just being, it's tea time. And my mum's like, you know, oh, you, just tell your gran, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that having found out quite recently that I'm I'm autistic, you know, is it explains a lot for some of my, you know, very strong enthusiasms that I had for a long time. And I would like come and, and do that. But I also think that if you if you are a conscious reflective practitioner, which I am, I like to think uh, sometimes more than other times, but I try to do that, then and you're keen on the idea of seeing seeing your students and engaging with them and letting them know that they're seen. Because I always think that you get the best work from people who trust you. And the main thing that people want, and I say this just as a rule of life, um, so you can get that one for free. It's not just a teaching one. It's, I think the main thing that people want is to be seen, you know, to feel seen and to feel like they belong. So inclusivity, you know, making people feel seen and included in the classroom, using names if you can, that kind of thing is really important. And it's not it's not just a gimmick. It actually is about building a sense of community. And I think it's really important to people's learning so they feel that you actually have a stake in who they are and how they're going to do and stuff. And that's different from giving them the answers or being focused on the outcomes like, you know. I need you all to get first. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's about I need to do the best work that you can, but it's a two-way process. And I need to be giving you an object lesson in how to do this, but it's also one that can benefit from you interrogating it. So it's that sort of dynamic. Um, so when I'm in these 
classrooms and I, I do think it is partly like my neurodivergency as well I'm I am also hyper vigilant and I've been since I was a kid which means I'm always watching things I'm always trying to head off um problems and I think with with autism it would be that I'd be trying to watch how other people were so I could mask and I could be a bit like them because I was conscious that on some level I was different and I think that all those things actually contribute to my practice and I hadn't realized but they do so I go in and I watch them and you know I can pick up on tiny tells if somebody's struggling and actually it's not just their eyes it's it's the whole face and so when I was teaching in person which I was this year but people have masks on it threw me I found it harder to to warm up the room. I tried, but I felt a bit desperate. I felt a bit like a kid's TV presenter and a kind of, so everybody, what are we doing? You know, it was a bit like, it made me think of the awful Lex Akimbo a theatre group in League of Gentlemen, which is probably showing my age there. But, you know, it was like, hi, I'm Ollie. Isn't this great? Oh, kids, you know, <laughs> real sort of like desperation. Like, please. It's, it's all good to be okay. So I thought that, that I felt like it probably wasn't quite like that. And students have told me that, you know, they, they benefited from some of the things that I did to include them. But um, I did really feel that that was a massive gap for me. And then when we uh -huh. went online, when you have students who don't want to show themselves on camera, and I, I think we shouldn't force them to, I think that that has to be a personal choice. And I do think that it's not like great when, um, when you're at home and you've you know your setup isn't good to, to kind of add that extra layer of of awkwardness for somebody that they've got to potentially make themselves vulnerable in that way but then suddenly you wouldn't see faces you'd see some but a lot of the time you wouldn't see many and I, I really miss that so what I, I mean what have I done what I've done so one thing I tried to do was I tried to use some of our tools so I got like a couple of the map tools and I was trying to get people to show where they lived on a map so we could all get to know each other and that was fine but at first um you know, it depends on everybody being able to join in and everyone wanting to engage. Uh, I was like, you can give a general area, a region, just don't give the exact address. I was like, please don't give the exact address. Um, uh, um, and then I realised I'd given an address that was very near to where my mum lived. So I was like, well, you know, go go visit her. She's on her own. Just put some cake in the garden. <laughs> um, so <laughs> she's like the visitor. So I... Um, I did I did that, I did the mapping and then I would do other things with them. Um we I would do lots of people trying to introduce themselves. I, I use I was using names all the time, especially when we we're on screen, um and I couldn't see their faces. So if and we'd use the chat for answers. So if everybody if anyone gave an answer, even if five people gave the same answer, I would just say thank you and just go through their names really quickly so they would hear their names being said. Because it was like, I see you and I'm acknowledging what you're doing and you're being included so that was a little bit um you know those were small things that i did to try to foster community and inclusion oh. and the other thing that i actually did was and it's, i wouldn't recommend it this is not something to recommend particularly if you've got i don't want to set this up as an example necessarily for staff who are being paid hourly or precarious and particularly oh. teaching track staff we have a lot of demands and i think that that I wouldn't necessarily do this ideally, but what I tried to do was give them spaces to talk to me. So I did set up like open hours and tutorial hours. Mm. Come see me for 20 minutes. And it was a lot and they didn't all come, but most of them did. And that was great. Oh. So 20 minutes with them where I got to see their faces and then we got to talk and they got to tell me what was worrying them. That was, that was really important, but that is something that now knowing what I do now, um, I think I could have anticipated a little bit more. Mm. I I think because I knew that we were supposed to be in person with some online, I 
looking back, didn't think as carefully about how to scaffold the the lack of contact online. And I also didn't anticipate how much I rely on being able to see faces and read them to help me with my own practice. So, I, so, so those are things that, as we go forward next year, if we do some sort of hybrid model, I have to think about. You know, I have, I have to think about that. Yeah, mm, it, it's it's interesting. Isn't it? I think also from a student perspective, it's the kind of it's particularly for first years people who've new to to university. It, it must be hard not to have those kind of corridor kind of chats where you meet somebody and you go for a cup of coffee with them and all the social stuff that we all took for granted that occurs outside the classroom kind of i mean it, it there, there don't get me wrong there are kind of colleges organize online events and so on but it's it's often the spontaneity isn't it that creates those kind of relationships with others that you don't you don't get potentially you know i mean i'm sure the students themselves self-organize and have you know, I don't know. I was going to show, show my age here. WhatsApp probably isn't what they use anymore, but that kind of thing. WhatsApp groups. Well, they do. You know, some of them do. Some of them have WhatsApp groups, and they do have they have module chat groups or um, sometimes seminar groups. And and what I know that I well, I did a thing where I put them in groups of fours and fives with study buddies and said, "You've got a, a built group that you can use and just get to know those people." So I was trying to replicate some of those things because I'm conscious that the social it's never just about the content. I think that that that's I think that one of the advantages <laughs> rolls eyes of um, having been precarious and I had I had um, I had a three month job at Durham a year at Kings and then I mean I'd also taught when I was at Oxford I taught Oxford and Birkbeck at the same time so I had some variety of experience from there but um but I was at Kings for you and then I came back to Durham and initially the first few years I think it was first year I was on one year contract then the next year one and then I went to a three-year one and went permanent but I think that that even though especially these days that's actually not that long on the in the precarious like um quartile is it a quartile? I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking maybe put that you know I mean, if we're going to do use quartiles it's not that long in that but it was long enough and you carry it with you for me to be thinking a lot of the time about the transferability of what I do so you have to be conscious that you can't set up systems with the expectation that you know somebody else will just carry this on and you've got to be always thinking about the things that you like you'll do everything as the ninja colleague to stay in post but I think that you've got to be really careful of over committing in ways that would commit anybody who takes over from you to a, a lot of additional goodwill work and I think that, you know, that's that's something you're like, the students talk to me, they really like me and it's great. You know, we've got this bond and like, that's, that's sort of like, and therefore keep me in the job. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that I think that if you come in in those roles where quite often you're teaching out of field, you're teaching whatever you're given, you have to be adaptable. And I think that that forces you, whether you're willing to acknowledge it or not, to think more about the nature of the environment that you're in and the kind of teaching. And the mistake that I see people make is when they just focus entirely on the content. I very quickly learned that it's not that the content is irrelevant, but you can make a massive difference to how that content is received if you think carefully about who is receiving it and in what way. And I still see 
examples now of what I would call bad practice, um, where people just go in and it's a list of everything I know about this and, and I've written on this. And that's that, that they don't care half the time that you've written on it. It's interesting if you say I've written on it and, and this would be great for a project or I've written on it and how this might help you. But if it's simply here is my here's my thought patterns and my ideas and I've written on it, that is very abstract, I think, for a lot of students. And it's the connections about why that then makes this a really interesting and live topic to engage with or why we need to, you know, how this could be built on if anybody's looking for a dissertation project. That's that's where the interest comes in there. And so I think that because I couldn't necessarily form those sort of um, attachment bonds to teaching my own material from the outset, it has made me more conscious of some of the um, some of the well, what some people might think of as peripheral, but I think is essential to ensuring that your your group works well with you. And I think that that is doubly important if there's a sense of your own impermanency. So if you're saying, if you're teaching those people and you know that you're not necessarily going to be able to pick up on this again in two years' time with your third-year module, you, you know, you have a different sense of what the content's about. And um, also as well, you don't take for granted the sort of the, the connections. You have to sit and think in a conscious way. I'm teaching this module and do the work of how does this module fit into the program? How does it fit with the modules around it? What's adjacent? Where will this take person X to and person Y? And I, you know, every sort of role I had that was was fixed term, I went in and did that thinking for myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, oh, someone will tell me because I didn't expect that they would. And I think that there was less mentoring then, so people didn't. So I would sit there and I'd make all these connections and then it was like, and here we go. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Because, I mean, talking about kind of precarity and then kind of developing a career, just out of interest, who, and you talked about there wasn't a lot of mentoring, but so who are the people who've really influenced how you teach then in terms of kind of your career? Who who would you who would you call out as someone who's really had a influence on you no the people who inspired me were the people at school i went to very low attainment schools with incredibly mediocre teachers who were really focused on kind of containment of um students with behavioral issues they weren't engaged with their subjects it was a lot of dialing it in and i really disliked school i was a very bad truant and i would go to the library and teach myself things and i did not primary school was fine in a way but secondary school was really a horrible experience and it and it turned me off education a lot um but then i when i went to university and I chose the subject kind of by accident because I had a gap after 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 I originally wanted to go and do music and go to music college. Um, and I got a place and then messed up all my levels. I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I had friends in bands. I grew up in Manchester at a time where there was lots going on. So everything I knew was in a band or wanted to be in a band or work for a band or did stuff. And and I you know I met some people and I had this these friends who said, oh, you can come on tour with us. So actually, I ended up working in the music industry, like you know, music and pop music for a few years and ran a record label and and people like you know anybody listening who doesn't know these names you can google them Sam you have to do one of those things where you go who this is but I did I did like a John Peel session I was interviewed on John Peel who's a, a really influential DJ at the time I, and so I worked with bands and I did stuff in the music industry and I was living in Leeds actually I moved from Manchester to Leeds and and actually when you would go on tour I'd take lots of books and they were always like it wasn't I mean there's nothing wrong with it with a copy of Biz 
and I kind of probably having a laugh. But it wasn't I wasn't I wasn't just doing that. I was taking like other things. And I, I was always a voracious reader, I think partly being an autodidact. I've just never thought that books were I didn't have those I didn't have that same thing of like, should I be reading this or is this my level or or what are other people reading? I just read what I wanted to read, you know, and um and that sort of was quite an interesting thing. So I didn't have a massive background in classics and I was I was in Leeds and it was coming up to summer and I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I decided to go through clearing and I had a friend who worked at a local FE college and she was great and said to me, um, I'll go and have a look in the careers room. So I did. I went and looked in the careers room and then I picked like a load of subjects. And I was like, maybe I'll do this. And I'd written some articles for, for fanzines and local magazines. And I got in, I got an interview at Leeds to do classical civilization. I was like, well, I kind of know what this is. We'll see how it is. I just went in and I got interviewed by these people. And, um, and um, yeah, one of them said, you know, to me quite recently, even all these years later, that, yeah, I was really impressive. But, you know, if it had just been on paper on my A-levels, they might have thought I was risky. But because they saw me in person, they were like, well, this is great. So university was a was a big change for me. And I studied in a range of places. I studied in Leeds and in New York and in Oxford. And, yeah, and I have to say that there were two people at Leeds, Liz Pender and Douglas Cairns, who were really important. Both of them working class classicists. Both of them were from non-traditional backgrounds. And Liz is from, from Hartley, well, Seton Carew, I'll just say Seton Carew. And um, and Douglas is from Glasgow, and they um, Liz's family background there was a quite a bit of overlap with my own, so it was I, I actually saw people like me doing this job, and I mean I hadn't realised I needed those sorts of people. I just always used to see people in I don't know black and white films and think oh I'll be like Diana Durbin, and, and you might need to gloss that one, or oh I'll be like you know so and so, and I'll meet somebody like the. Dirk Bogard will get married, and it'll be great. You know it wouldn't have worked out I think with me and Dirk to be quite honest. If you know anything about his personal history, but but um but you know that's how I was I you know and I think that's also part of the autism thing you know you see yourself in these like these last scenarios the idea that there were academics like me or that I need role models I I hadn't really understood until they appeared quite magically and they were a bit like my academic parents and actually a lot of people at least were really great to me and very supportive so that made a massive difference having um Liz and Douglas and watching how they talk, watching, I mean, they, they influenced me in that Douglas is very uncompromising in some ways. Um, he's not an inflexible thinker, but he's got real grit and a real kind of like sense of, well, it's that this. And, you know, and I liked, I liked something of how, um, how that sort of, he didn't soft soap things and he wasn't always kind of massaging them like, oh, it's a bit like this, a bit like that. He was like, well, I think this. And he was so confident in his views. I, I really liked that. And I think Liz, because there was a certain quirkiness to her and um, she worked on literary philosophy and it was with her that I first read Lucretius and Lucretius became like my research interest. And she, I would sit with her and we'd just talk about philosophical things. And that was really engaging. And because it was literary philosophy, which doesn't mean that you overlook the actual philosophical components, but you're often looking not just at what it says, but how it's said. That basically opened things up for me. And, and there are still things now that she taught me that I use. So, I mean, I can still hear her in my head now saying, you know, when, when you're writing, and I wrote fairly well, but it needed sharpening. You know, t she taught me how to write an introduction. And she made me think about, and to take to take ownership of the discourse and to kind of become part of it. And, you know, she also would say things to me like, one idea, one sentence. And it's like, I tell my students that all the time. So there are things about, about the two of them that were really... I think important for me at that stage. I mean, and then, you know, when I went to other institutions, I met 
people who were inspiring and, and interesting. Um, and, you know, there was, um, I mean, Seth Benedetti at NYU was, was fascinating and he, he was really quite, quite senior, quite elderly at the time and not entirely well, but he was very odd. He trained in the Chicago school in the sort of the fifties with all these really interesting thinkers. And he, he brought a whole different way of looking, which I don't entirely agree with, but he brought a whole different way of looking at classics that was really important um, to how I developed as a thinker. And, I, and and some things I do are in opposition to things Seth did, but it was really interesting. And then in Oxford, there, there, were, there were other people too. But interestingly enough, at Oxford, I was in the same college as and then spent time with James Morwood, who um, sadly died fairly recently. And he was a classicist who'd been a teacher who came to Oxford and did a lot of the designing of the classes for the post-A-level students or the students who came in without A-levels who were picking up languages ab initio. And he wrote the um, Oxford Latin grammar and the, um, the one for ancient Greek as well. And doing some sort of that was the only teacher training I ever had. Um, we, we would, and it wasn't really teacher training. It was just all the graduates would sit in a room with him and we'd all try things out a bit. But that that was great because he was he was very engaging and very interesting. And, um, you know, I, it was nice to actually have an opportunity to think about some of the practical elements of, of teaching because, you know, you didn't. So often people, the assumption was, and I've had colleagues say this to me, oh, you know, could my graduate student teach this module, you know, and I was like, well, I suppose they could. And they'd say, I'd say, do they have much experience if they thought about the, the alignment issues and, you know, well, you know, how's this all going to fit together? And they're like, well, it's on their subject. And it's like, yeah, and so what? You know, I mean, I'm very, I don't want to sound rude, but then my re immediate reaction is like to be like, and great, that's a good start, but it's not the be all and end all, is it? No, absolutely, and and and, and you know, it, it it's a bit along the lines of you know, research and teaching are slightly different skills, quite different skills, and 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 you know, you can be the world's for not, you can have five Nobel prizes, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can teach a class. Uh, those aren't the same things. Um, I mean, I was interested by the discussion we had and one we had off the mic about kind of because you know you you talk about being a council estate classicist that's kind of identity and stuff and i wonder is it you know how how that that affects your relationship with your students you know so we you know as we try to diversify the kind of university even more and I, and and we talked a lot about because because i have a different background but in some ways we have some similarities and it and it, and it yeah and it, and it's like and i wonder if, for you how it um how it how it affects when people talk about widening participation and you th and you're thinking about your students. How does how does your background affect how you think about that? Well, yeah, it 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 does actually affect how I think about it, and um, I think that now we have all these initiatives, first generation scholar groups and networks and stuff. And I think that when I went to university, if somebody had said to me, you can join this group for people like you, I'd have been like, get lost. I don't need to join a group for people like me. I would have been really opposed to it and I wouldn't have wanted the support, but it was a bit different for me because I was, I'd gone to university very much because I was like, I absolutely want to do this. I'm interested in the project. Um, and I lived out, I wasn't in halls. So there wasn't the same pressure on me to fit in with um, an environment in halls or in college. I imagine, I mean, I know it's very different if you're put in with a random group and you all have to socialise and get to know each other. And the first questions that people always ask are, 
about, you know, where are you from? What do your parents do? And then there's usually the conversation about um, which Oxbridge College you didn't get into. That's like, you know, I hear that on our corridors every year. So there's always those sorts of things that presuppose a, a certain background. And that can be very alienating right at the start for some people because you don't, you don't always want to talk about your background. You don't know, and, and or you might do, and then you see everybody looks at you. And and I think with classics, we just have the issue that people think, oh, well, that's what relations that got to everyday life. It underpins so much. And, and that's why, you know, you're asking me about the working class thing. That's why I do a lot of outreach and why and access and participation. Those have been admin roles. I think, I don't want to say that there was sort of um, a kind of deter, well, I mean, here's the interesting thing. After I'd been at Durham a few years, I was, I was still on fixed-term contracts. I think I was grade seven at the time. I, I mysteriously ended up sitting on the board for the foundation degree. And you know that in a way people have got trust in you and they've given you this opportunity and that's good. But also, I, I think I didn't know that that was a kind of actually a slightly high status role, as it were, and that normally you're going to put other people on some of these committees. But but it was like, oh, Justine can handle that. And I was like, oh, well, that's great. And then after I, I realised that probably it was like, Justine won't say necessarily say anything that is out of turn or Justine might understand foundation and the value of it. And so it's a kind of backhanded compliment because it's like, you know, you're doing service. It's no coincidence, I think, that we see lots of people involved in outreach and participation and access initiatives who themselves would have benefited from them and didn't have them. And there's this question of who's doing the service there because we, we should all be doing the service. We should all want to have that set of aims of making, being able to have the best people from a range of environments and not. So I think that really with a lot of outreach and, and, and wide and participation, university initiatives are great, but they're almost too late. I think you've got to start right in primary schools. And that's why I do work with this national charity called Classics for All, um, who do work with, with, with primary schools a lot, because I think you have to just actually demystify university and just always a place where you can talk about your ideas and you can share that and you can learn skills and if you that's not dumbing down but it's actually stripping it back to things that are transferable and 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 i, I think that that's something that um is really important on a more sort of public sense because i'm on twitter I and I put, you know, I've got in my byline that I'm from, I've got a thing where I say, uh, from Withenshaw, Colin, what's your superpower, right? Which I think is quite funny because a lot of people, when they find out I'm classicist, I get students, I'll say, where are you from? So Manchester, I go, oh, me too. And then they go, where are you from? And I say, oh, you know, Withenshaw. And you can always see there. They go, oh, yeah. Because they're used to the idea that, like, they actually meet someone. It's one of those places where people tell you, oh, never go there. Oh, you don't want to go there. And it's like, well, I'm from there, you know. Um, but I, I, um, I've had a couple of students who aren't my own, whom I didn't teach. I mean, I have students who, whom I've taught who kept in touch with me and said that they felt very supported by um, me being honest about who I am. And, 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 and there was a, yeah, there was a recent thing where there was a sort of, we did, the students did a, for, for International um, Women's Week, they did a thing where they did lots of little um, posts on women or people who identify as women in the department and things that students have said about them. And one student said that I helped them believe that they had a place as a working class student in, in the field. And I thought, well, that was a, a really lovely thing to hear. But what's been interesting about having that more public profile on Twitter, which I don't, I don't encourage people to follow me, but if they do, fair enough, is I've actually had people who 
somebody stood at Durham in a different department and somebody in Manchester get in touch with me, these young women who are from Withenshaw and say, oh, hello, I'm from Withenshaw. And actually, we've got a little support group, we've got a little network with them. And so if they have, if I see they've posted something where they're being a bit mean on themselves or they're having a bad day, I go, come on, you can do it. And like, you know, sometimes they'll message me and it's, it's really nice to be able to actually just go, yeah, it's not a big deal. You don't have to go, how did you achieve this incredible thing? And yet, I get that it's an achievement. I know that people with with ADHD and ASD, percentage-wise, I think it's something like what? Is it only 15 to 18% of them are in steady employment? So I know that there are things about me that make me distinctive, but I don't believe that I am just this, you know, super being with superpowers. I actually think that there are plenty of people like me in working class environments who with the right support and a sense of aspiration could achieve more in whatever direction that is and it might be taking um, a leadership role in the hospitality sector it might be being creative in art or music and dance all these areas that increasingly get closed off if you don't have money to to self-support and I, you know and i also think that given how good many of us are you know making a good argument i think i think we've got a lot of good you know people who could be really good lawyers and solicitors and barristers and women sure but but partly it's about does your face fit and do you sound right you know i think those things still do matter um a lot and i think i mean we do all the um training don't we um anti-bias training in universities if you're going to sit on hiring committees and it's true because i i see myself sometimes like oh well i sort of know what this person stands for and you have to check yourself yeah it's difficult what is it because you see you see a name or a thing or it's triggers triggers for people and and it's it's you you compare somewhat you you basically try and pigeonhole someone with someone else you know and then think they're exactly the same as that person that you've encountered once you might have done the same thing with as well you know it's like a perpetual cycle of bias if you like it's all it's it's you really do have to check yourself so i just want to thank you Steve. i think that's been a fa- we've, we've kind of had kind of a wide ranging one there haven't we? we've gone from you know teaching online to uh, you know uh, exploring kind of identity i guess is, is 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 a big part of what we've talked about and um and kind of widening participation naturally and and kind of um feeling part of a learning community and I just want to thank you for that because I think it's been a fascinating chat no thank you I, I appreciate having the chance to talk to you as well it's nice to spend time with you actually it's like uh, that's one thing that's one thing I have missed it, it's not the same online getting to pop you know over to the learning solution centre and seeing like you know some of the DCAD team or helping out with things it's, it's not quite the same when you can't do it in person it, it yeah. isn't and if people want to follow you on Twitter Justine I, I know your Twitter handle but what's your Twitter handle it's at JT Wolfenden W-O-L-F-E-N-D-E-N so you can follow me there yeah brilliant thanks Justine Thanks, Sam. So as discussed before, let's unpick the idea of universal design for learning and have a think about practical implementations, tips and next steps. So over to you, Nick. Okay, so um, I'm obviously coming at this from um, a developer's perspective. So I'm perhaps focused a little bit on kind of material production and in particular in the online space. But um, I think I think the, the biggest things to think about are using different formats for your content. So mixing it up rather than just having lots of um, videos, especially long ones, small videos, including things like transcriptions, obviously, but also including things like text, uh, audio, different photographs, diagrams, icons. You can even use emoji 
in your web content these days. Um, making sure that you're providing those alternative formats where they're necessary. So I've mentioned transcripts of videos, but also things like text descriptions for visual content, thinking in total about how people are going to receive the material that you're producing. I mentioned alt text earlier on. So when you're putting images into Word documents or to PDFs or websites, you need to provide alt text. And this has historically been kind of misused, I suppose. So when I say misused, I mean probably just not used effectively, really. So people might put a picture up and it's like a picture of, um, you know, uh, a diagram or something. And they'll just say, you know, on the alt text, it'll say, you know, diagram 1.2, this is a diagram of blah. But actually what you need to think about is that doesn't address the meaning of the diagram. It doesn't, it doesn't look at the meaning of the image in the context of the page. So one way to think about creating alternative text in this way is to think about what you would write if the image was not there at all. And that's your alt text. So you're, you're describing the thing in total, why it's there, what it means, etc. cetera. So that, that's, that's one way of thinking about alt text, I think. Also, when you're thinking about documents that people are going to download um, or web pages that you're creating, then thinking about text size is really important, um, color, contrast, and layout to make them easier to read. Um, things like if you're using a if you're creating a Word document, using things like the text styles. Um, so that means that screen readers know the where your headings are, the relative importance of the different types of text on the screen and how the document's organized. It makes it a lot easier for things like screen readers to actually use them. And using formats like Word as well for downloadable content means that the learner themselves can customize the, the text file so that it can they can perhaps change the color of the text, change the background color, um, increase the text size, etc., to improve their experience of it. Um, also thinking about things like scaffolding. So scaffolding, uh, making sure that that supports information processing and enables people to really engage with it properly. So things like prompts for processes, um, chunking your information and sequencing it appropriately. All of these things support UDL. Um, and in, in incorporating things like interactive materials, and obviously those are quite intensive to develop, but there's quite a lot of open uh, open learning objects and materials available out there now that, that can be used. And your, your LMS might have, uh, your VLE might actually have um, certain tools to enable you to do that for some things like H5P um, and, and tools like that. Um, we talked a bit about earlier on about terminology and definitions and allowing people into the, the language of your subject. So sometimes it might be useful to provide pre-learning for stuff like that. So perhaps providing a glossary or some explanations of key terms um, or some um, different ways of seeing key terms before you delve into new and unfamiliar areas for the learners. Um, also thinking a bit more broadly, in terms of class or online interaction type uh, activities. Um, Face-to-face, obviously, make sure everyone can hear you. I mean, I I finished a master's about 18 months ago now, and uh, my classroom experience there, I, I had 60 people in one room that was too small for everyone. Um, and 
it, at the back you could barely hear anything the lecturer was saying quite often if uh, so using things like microphones and speaker systems um can reduce those those problems um you could use some different techniques to make sure that everyone can work together effect effectively so things like building in collaborative working both online and face to face and in class, using techniques that that kind of are sort of friendly to people with um, different perceptions and uh, different um, diverse issue diversity issues, things like uh, think, pair, and share that can provide things like thinking time, safe sharing of ideas in smaller groups, and then larger group sharing. So that that can really encourage people who might not be so confident or able to express themselves in larger groups to get their ideas heard and shared. And then potentially providing different means of completing tasks. So you could have written tasks, spoken tasks, posters, comments um, on platforms like Padlet or similar things like that. Um, with Padlet, you can leave different types of comments. You can leave audio comment, visuals, text, videos, etc. So using one platform that can actually incorporate a lot of different types of engagement might be one way of doing it. And then on a broader scale, things like audience response systems that might be supported in your in your environment like i said i'm coming from um, a kind of digital development perspective so if you guys got any ideas that might be more more applicable towards that classroom environment in a classroom environment people always overestimate no sorry or people always underestimate is the social anxiety that a lot of people feel so if you're saying anyone anybody got any questions it's only good if you're it's only going to be the ones who are most confident who are going to ask questions. So putting up, having um, a, a channel, a, a feedback channel that's uh, that's text-based. We find that one of the things that uh, we find when we put give people online discussion boards is that actually that opens up the dialogue a lot more than when they were sitting in class. People go, oh, well, I, this is no good because, um, you know, you feel like you lose that sense of community when you're in a classroom um no usually you find that when you give people the online option that's when a community really starts because that's when people feel comfortable about sharing ideas because they're not having to do it exposed towards a group of 100 or 200 people in a huge lecture theater and they're not limited to doing so like once a week or something they can engage whenever they want to. and they can stop and think about it as well and which is really important linking back to last time and when we talked about learning analytics you know, you could actually look at the popularity of some of these different options you give to people as well. Not the ones you need to do, but the ones that you might choose to do on top of um, and kind of and adapt, I guess, as well. Because if you design, lots of us designers were going along. So you can actually get gauge the popularity of including this, that, the other in, in your design. I mean, I think there are certain things we just talked about that, that, that Nick mentioned that you, you can, you need to do, but the things that you might want to do um, uh, to in increase the pathways, you can use learning analytics there to check, right? That, that gives you yeah, um, I would say, though, that it's not about what is most popular because even if there's just one student that, you, you know what I mean, when you're universal design for learning, is universal. So even if there's a few, uh, we, we often come across this when we're looking at student personas and we'll say, well, my typical student is like this. And I'm going, yeah, you're not designing for your typical student. You're not designing for the students that that full, is 90% of your cohort. You're designing ideally for the 5%, the 2% who struggle the most, who, who encounter the most barriers and designing for them 
because if you've designed for them, then everybody else is going to be okay as well. Uh, everybody else is going to be enhanced. So I think that's the issue: is you you if you're trying to make something that's that's as good as possible, then you design for the one percent or the two percent rather than the eighty percent. Good. I think that that's that's quite that's kind of like captures the essence of what UDL is, isn't it? Really, that's there's also the scaffolding that goes around student support so um there's a thing like uh people sometimes struggle with some of the more executive functions like uh planning and motivation and keeping on top of things so this is really ties back to the last episode when we're talking about learner analytics so you know if you can put things in place for the students so they can make that easier to monitor where they are what they need to do next to break down the tasks more um, for them so they can see what they need to focus on some students struggle with that and it's not necessarily what you want to be testing in your uh, in your degree I mean okay maybe maybe if it's a business management course and you think well okay if they can't pass that then maybe they don't need to they shouldn't be getting a two one or a first in my in my degree but if it's something where those things aren't essential those skills aren't essential then then you shouldn't be inadvertently testing the student's ability to do those sorts of things so you need to do so yeah put in place those sort of structures that sort of um admin architecture that can that can act in place of the students inability to do that for themselves and is there a thing when it comes down to assessment though because we, we that I, I get your point mark but then you know think about assessment We're, most most people who run modules have a single assessment for that module and we try and account for students uh, with particular disability needs, um, for example, by trying to, you know, have reasonable adjustments for that assessment. But, you know, and we you talked a little bit before about not having too many choices in assessment, but is there something about having potentially some assessments where there is choice to allow students to kind of um, pick the the method that appeals, that appeals to them most, that's the wrong word, that, that, that engages them with the element of their learning that they need to increase Gives them the best chance of meeting the learning outcomes. Basically, is what you're after, isn't it? And and yeah, if if you're not, if what well, partly what part of what that I think, um, I think part of what any graduate leaving a an undergraduate degree should be able to do is write effectively, but also perhaps um, present information graphically effectively and in other mo- modes as well, because. You know, there's a kind of graduateness which is about engagement with society and in, and engagement with your discipline or your or your role in life, which for which those those things are essential elements. So I think maybe they need to be tested at some point. They need to be assessed at some point, and you need to be good at them in order to to get a well do well in the degree. But they don't have to be there all the way through. And yeah, you're looking at your rubric for your. Um, for your assessment and you're thinking well okay the student could meet these the this rubric through something other than an essay why not give them the option for doing that uh the downside of course that then yeah the only downside of course that's way more difficult to mark because you've got way more different media that the things are being are being submitted in but um but yeah it's worth thinking about potentially more interesting to mark though that's true as well and the other point as well is that um you know a final one big summative assessment at the end just isn't good assessment design you know yeah it puts students under more stress because they're more anxious and if you've got particular anxieties then you're not going to function so well 
But even if you haven't got, even if you're not an anxious person with particular emotional anxieties, exam anxiety is a huge thing for everybody. I still have nightmares about them, and it's been forty years, no, thirty five years since I last did one. You know, so why why put people through that 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 stress unless you are testing to see how well people function under stress? And there are very few jobs where you'd have to function like that. It's sort of goes alongside the concept of authentic assessment and and and, and looking at assessments that are kind of real world applicable as well yeah no absolutely and i think that's that's something we need that that's a fascinating topic and it it's probably worth unpicking bringing bringing that kind of idea together i mean i think there there are different levels you can approach these complex problems at, and it depends upon what kind of issue you're trying to address i mean if i think about what you know when i used to teach modules i i started Actually, the very first time I did it as, as, as part of the PG Cap, I did a focus group with my students, and it's something I kept doing every year, even when I didn't need to do it anymore, because I, I learned so much from that. Um, the challenge with that is making sure that you get a good representative sample of your students. It's not just the the, the it, so that every kind of possible sort of student you get to talk to at some point, um, you know, over over the cycle, and you're not you're not listening to perhaps students who have no particular needs that beyond the not you know beyond i hate to say the standard because that's 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 nonsense beyond beyond the the main student body and you can actually listen to students who are struggling and think about designing for them i mean i guess beyond that you know there are bigger projects you know i think i think i think about you know we're you know, doing a lot of work on culture uh in, across the sector at the moment and in in the university we all work in we're, we're, we're you know we're funding uh, students in every department to work with with staff on on researching and developing new uh, decolonized curricula and that's a that's an institutional project but it, it in some senses that they're, they're similar they're just on different slightly different skills so getting students as partners into the design of curricula i think is is probably one of the most powerful tools we have to drive to drive change uh, and and open the open learning up for everybody it, this is this is absolutely something like that that needs to be looked at as an institutional problem um whereas historically it's probably been seen as a very small niche problem and i think that's where the udl concept helps really to to recontextualize it and say this isn't a problem for just that one or two percent or ten percent of students that, that um that have always been seen as edge cases but this is a problem that needs to be thought about broadly and for everyone. So with that, let's move on to this month's tip. So it's over to Nick for Nick's tips. I've got three tips for us this month. So uh, the first one is to think proactively about how your students are going to engage with your material rather than reacting to problems as they arise. So look at the UDL website, the UDL guidelines, and look at the checkpoints that they include there. Think about how you can prepare, present, and enhance your digital content to boost its accessibility. Uh, Second one, consider your IT skills and look at ways to brush them up where needed or find out who you can contact for support to do this. UDL doesn't explicitly require technology, but a lot of the solutions that that it talks about might involve some sort of IT skills or knowledge to help you make the course content more accessible. And number three, while there are some parts that you have to do to be legally compliant with legislation, don't feel like you've got to get it all right and address all the needs in the materials and activities right off the bat. Take it a module, a week, or a subject at a time. Find what works for your students in your subject. So that sort of focus on the student rather than focusing necessarily on the curriculum content. Focus on the student and their needs. 
When it comes time to look at whole curriculum redesign, look at UDL as a framework that can help to maximise accessibility for all of your students across the board. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with our digital learning team, they're happy to help and can be contacted through dcad.inquiries at durham.ac.uk and we'll do our best to help you with any queries. So that brings us to the end of our second podcast. We hope you found it useful and you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again soon to explore another aspect of learning and teaching, to hopefully debunk some myths and leave you feeling a little less perplexed. And I'll hand over to everybody else to say goodbye. If you want to get in touch with me through Twitter, I'm at Mark Childs. And I'm also on the Twitters and you can get me at, at Nicola Fern. And I'm on Twitter as well and I'm at Sam Giannolan. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Rochelle E. O'Brien. And as always, good luck finding that one. Thanks for listening.